We turn our attention to the proclamation of God's word. The first lesson is the Old Testament lesson. It comes to us in Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 30. I invite you to follow along in the Pew Bible if you would like. It's found on page 125. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 of the elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of the chosen men, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Friends, our second reading of the morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. Hear now the word of God for you and for me. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of powerful deeds. To another prophecy. To another the discernment of spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the discernment of spirits to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Let us pray. Gracious God, let us now unite in prayer as the disciples did on Pentecost. Open us to receive the very same Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, make your word understandable to all who hear. Through the peace of the Holy Spirit, reconcile and redeem us. Through the purity of the Holy Spirit, bring us into the fullness of your presence not for our personal gain, but for your glory, honor, and praise. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Friends, I'm going to do a pretty liberal exegesis of what the Word says about Pentecost as it relates to our lives today. So I hope you not only pack the Holy Spirit, but a little bit of patience with me this morning. Many of you have heard me testify of growing up in the Baptist tradition, Black Baptists in particular, and there's a difference, where the teaching of eschatology was pervasive. This part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of our souls in the setting of a marginalized community always either condemned the soul to damnation, or at best, it was the great escape from the oppressor's rule. This was the preached gospel to the downtrodden and disinherited, the locked out and left out in society. But like a fresh and fierce wind, there was a thrust into the Presbyterian denomination during my first year or my last year of seminary. It was both my answer to the call by God to move as well as an intellectual afterthought. Quite frankly, a paradigmatic conundrum, seeing as though this new context was and is in a dominant culture demographic. It is a place where reform theology dictates the privilege of predestination. So as an educated African-American woman whose socioeconomic status has swung the pendulum, I find myself at the intersection of Reverend Dr. Barry Gaddard's one true thing about God, and a pluralistic experience of what we call the Holy Spirit, often wondering how one divine spirit can multiply itself into the manifestations of spiritual gifts we have through Jesus Christ. On last week, we were ironically provided vivid imagery of the unseen reality of God, tangible yet seemingly obscure evidence of God's presence in our lives. A remarkable reassurance considering our recollection of Jesus leaving earth and ascending into heaven some 40 days after the resurrection. We can imagine feelings of abandonment, confusion, neglect, and dissociation as trauma responses to this distressing event. We, through our own experience of displacement, might even understand the disciples' loss of their sense of security. It is with these things in mind that I have spent the past 10 days from Ascension to Pentecost, reframing and reimagining what life would be without the coming of the sweet Holy Spirit. Traditionally, Pentecost is met with an undoubtedly significant exegesis of Acts 2, a sermon of Peter's which we too must explore for just a moment. Its passage begins, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. If a room full of people given the ability to speak foreign languages sounds electrifying, Try imagining a church full of prophets. 
The visible and audible sounds, signs of the Spirit receive nearly all the attention in Pentecost liturgy, art, and wonder. But Acts 2 speaks of another Pentecost sign. Although that sign may be relatively understated in the text, it has the most powerful and long-term effects. It is a manifestation of the Spirit that we continue to experience on a regular basis, even though some assume that it's relegated to the repertoire of ministers of word and sacrament, scholars and scholar practitioners. This sign reference in Acts 2 is of prophecy. Yet Peter does not speak of prophecy as predicting the future. Instead, prophecy is truth-telling. It is naming the places and ways where God intervenes or initiates in the world. It is a competent, a component of proclaiming the word of God and identifying God's salvation at work. Peter's sermon does more than name the notion of prophecy. It also demonstrates it. We learn what prophecy is by watching him do it. From Peter's reference to Joel, we see that, that prophecy speaks to the present time. But prophecy finds promises and images from the past that allow it to speak. It draws from prior testimony about God's activity. It also uses ideas and promises that point toward the future. For all of Pentecost and its prophetic message points toward the day of the Lord and the salvation God will ultimately accomplish. The rest of Peter's sermon does similar things. In a complex exegetical argument, it looks to scripture and the story of Jesus to show that Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation provide the basis for the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter is at pains to show that the events of the day point beyond themselves to reveal that Jesus is Lord and Messiah and that God's salvation is at hand. This is what prophets do. They show how present events might connect to God and God's purpose. Prophecy carries a lot of semantic baggage within the church universal, thanks to the charismatic Christian movement. So some of us might be more apt to use another word that captures what Peter describes in Acts 2. That word is interpretation. He makes sense of the crowd's experience. He offers a theological basis for what the crowd is experiencing and for what they must do to share in the salvation God has prepared. That hellfire and brimstone God I was referring in my Baptist upbringing is, I believe, the result of bestowing high Christological characteristics to Peter, who is not primarily an interpreter of Scripture. First and foremost, he is an interpreter of the present time and the gospel. Scripture becomes helpful as a means by which he makes sense of those things. Furthermore, Peter also refers to a community full of visionaries and dreamers. He is not the only one equipped to make meaning. That work belongs to all who receive the Spirit, both then and now. So then, our church observance of Pentecost should be more than a mere creation of nostalgia and rather an equipping of interpreters or prophets. God's Spirit is poured out widely across social boundaries. It is that epiphany that has led me to this place to First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And I believe it is also that same spirit that led to the accepting and receiving of the first African-American member at first some 50 years ago in 1973. Through this Acts narrative, we see we must live into God's future. 
ourselves susceptible to error and reliant on others to make sense of God's ways. Hence, Pentecost can be seen as a remembrance of the inclusivity and similarities of God's people, rather than the exclusivity we perpetuate when we magnify the difference of race, gender, sex, ethnicities, socioeconomic status, and the likes. This is the choppy work, the inspired work of all God's people. Pentecost then, as an entirely singular occurrence, hardly describes the church's work in total. It is an introduction of a sequence of occasions in which the Spirit mobilizes Jesus' followers. That's us. And inaugurates new directions for ministry and community. That's the church. The Spirit continues to nudge believers toward new horizons. If Acts 2 explains the meaning of Pentecost, what is the significance of placing Numbers 11 and 1 Corinthians 12 into today's lectionary? Let's first examine the text Barry read for us earlier in the book of Numbers. This text gives us a story to illustrate the hardships of the Israelites' journey through the wilderness and the new way God guided them. The story contains God's answer to the heavy burden of leadership on the shoulders of Moses. Furthermore, the story is an illustration of the way the guidance of God was understood by Moses and the people. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was regarded as the place of God's enthronement. As the people moved in the Exodus, it was carried out ahead, sometimes for three days, so that God could guide and forward the scouts to good places of rest and food. There were also enemies of the Israelites around, so the presence of God was both guide and guard. Yet people still complained and protests broke out. The manna that fell during the night only proved the Israelites had become insatiable. Moses' resources of strength and faith for leadership of the people waned. Then he complained. So how does God respond to his behavior? He responds by challenging Moses' idea of a monolithic style of leadership. No longer would Moses have a monopoly on receiving divine guidance. No longer will he alone possess the spirit of God. On the contrary, and at least temporarily, some of the divine spirit in Moses will be shared with 70 elders of the people. Their role? To carry some of the burden of the prophet. At least one biblical interpretation mentions that after receiving a portion of the divine spirit in Moses, the elders prophesied and did not cease. However, the Hebrew phrase is lo yasaf, which means did not continue. It seems that their prophesying on this occasion was sufficient for God to speak to the people through them, albeit temporarily. The story doesn't leave us here. More is revealed about the nature of this spirit. For there were two young men in the tent where it was thought God's presence existed. They too received some of the spirit in Moses and prophesied outside of the tent, in the camp, among the people. This is a huge step in understanding the way God relates to and through God's people. It shows us the spirit is not an exclusive experience. It can fall upon the ordinary, mundane places and circumstances among the people. God's spirit is not confined to human-made holy places such as this. So those of us ridiculing or berating our family members or close friends for not worshiping God within the confinement of these walls has God's permission, I believe, to stop. 
lest the witness to the omnipresence of God is obscured. Even Moses does not express anger or regard the young men as having acted presumptuously. When Joshua expresses dismay that Eldad and Medad have acted improperly, we can imagine a sarcastic chuckle in the voice of Moses. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them? A radical and audacious response to God giving voices to the voiceless. Divine permission to speak a prophetic future and a bold, clear message that God can, God will, make known God's self through God's people. And Moses, nor any other leader in antiquity or today, has a monopoly on them, the others, that many of us find ourselves othering. Which brings me to a final thought as we zoom in on the letter before us in 1 Corinthians. Friends, we often confuse unity with uniformity because it is much easier to gather with people who are like us than it is to reach across the divisions which mark our culture. We must admit that few of our churches reflect the ethnic, social, and economic diversity of the neighborhoods around them. Our congregations are often very homogeneous, and we are, sadly, comfortable with that. And this homogeneous outcome is not exclusive to dominant culture, although many would challenge the reasons why it is so for the major minority. Paul insists to the Church of Corinth on something richer, since the church is intended to be a foretaste of the final reconciliation of all things God promises, Paul calls the church to start acting that way. Diversity within the church is not a problem to be avoided, solved, or managed, but a gift of God's grace and a sign of the Spirit at work. The differing gifts of the Spirit form us in such a way that we do and indeed must belong to one another. Paul's claims throughout chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians find their foundation in baptism. In baptism, we experience the Spirit of God at work to overcome the divisions which the powers of this world nurture and on which they depend. The Corinthians had been competing with one another according to their culturally defined values. They were using the gifts of the Holy Spirit meant for the good of the whole community as their personal arsenal in the competition for honor at the expense of others. However, by pointing to the church's common experience of God's grace in baptism, Paul makes clear that we all share the same water, the same promise, the same spirit, and thus all are equally part of the same body. It will be helpful for us to ask what in our context corresponds to the culturally divided pairs mentioned in verse 13. Where do we find the human polarities now overcome in baptism and brought to surprising and profound unity in Christ? Black or white, Asian or Hispanic or indigenous, gay or lesbian, single or married, citizen or undocumented, rich or poor, young, or old? What about the unhoused, or the mentally ill, the diseased, and addicted? It is unlikely that fights over spiritual gifts will cause trouble in most of our congregations. However, these ethnic, social, and economic distinctions more frequently do.
This is where our own struggle for unity within diversity may be focused. Perhaps even more challenging for us is the accompanying diversity in conviction about how faith is to be lived out. In such disagreement, though, we find ourselves called to recognize that diversity helps us to keep asking what God's will is, rather than trapping ourselves in the same old assumptions. Holy diversity is an important remedy for our tendency toward complacency. The image of the body as a communal reality is not unique to Paul, though Paul may be the only writer in the New Testament to use it. Other writers in the Roman world, especially politicians and philosophers, use the same image. Most often, it was used to support the social hierarchy, whether of the family or the city or the empire as a whole. The point was that everybody needs a head, and in society, that was provided by the wealthy, the rulers, and the elite. Everybody needs hands and feet to do the hard and dirty work, and that was provided in society by just about everyone else. Paul, while drawing on the same image, turns the point in a very different direction. The unity of the body does not, in fact, mean that the less honored members get abused and treated roughly. Rather, all the parts belong to one another, and therefore, the weak parts are treated with special care. The result of the body metaphor in Paul's hands is not the same old hierarchy, or even the inverse of that culturally expected pattern of domination with new people placed on the top, but a deep unity of the whole body with each part cared for by the others. People ask what reconciliation and reparations might look like. Well, I think Paul's letter could address at least the importance of being committed to this work. Yet there is a kind of inversion happening here around the weak. If we stretch ourselves to read further, we see the themes of weakness in 1 Corinthians as has basic social and economic dimensions. Paul reminds the Corinthians that God has called mainly the weak of the world, those without status, rather than the noble-born and the powerful. Paul has already insisted that such cultural weakness characterized his own ministry because in a foundational way, it characterized Jesus' crucifixion. Contrary to most translations, 1 Corinthians 1.25 does not talk about the weakness of God, but the weak thing of God, which is the cross itself. Thus, the socially and economically weak cannot be despised, rejected, or marginalized in the church or by the church, because God's power is, in fact, at work in what the world sees as weakness. In the Corinthian church, the weak were, in fact, being despised and shamed by some of the others. Paul calls the church to a better way of life together. Differences within the church are astonishingly something that God has arranged. Thus, the diversity within the church community is not something to be tolerated or regretted or manipulated for one's own advantage, but something to be received as the gift that it is. Paul's argument implies that not only diversity, but unity in that diversity is a reality without which the church cannot live. Whatever strengthens a community of the church is to be sought, welcomed, and nurtured as God's good gift. Yet it may be worth noticing that the gifts which Paul lists as first, second, third, in verse 28, all deal with the words spoken to the church in one form or another. A congregation can probably exist and even thrive without healings or speaking in tongues, 
but it cannot live without the word of Christ spoken and heard. It is the good news proclaimed and taught that will form the church into one body in Christ. As we continue to ponder the glory of Pentecost, as we experience the goodness and awesome wonder of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us, let us act out our faith in ways that unify the church and the world. Not uniformity, not conformity, but as one body with many parts. My great-grandmother and matriarch in that Black Baptist church I told you about earlier had a favorite hymn. She mostly hummed it instead of singing the words, but it's a song that has never left my heart. It's what uplifts me when I feel like I'm on this journey all alone. I won't attempt to sing it, because I cannot sing, <laughs> but I'll share the words with you as a final salutation. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face, and I know that it's the presence of the Lord. Sweet Holy Spirit, sweet heavenly dove, stay right here with us, filling us with your love. And for these blessings, we lift our hearts in praise. Without a doubt, we know that we have been revived when we shall leave this place. Friends, be filled with the sweet Holy Spirit in this place and the world around. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to search for it. All you have to do is open yourself up to it. Amen.